I think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. One thing that ABA members have been asking for as long as I have been involved in the organization as staff has been a new membership directory. Well, and all the old magazines online, which we did early this year. So, so two things that ABA members have been asking for for as long as I have been involved as staff have been the old birding magazine online and an update to the membership directory. A little backstory, I guess. Uh, when I was a teen birder and a member of the ABA, the organization used to print this paper directory of all the members with their contact information. I think it was opt-in. I believe privacy issues have changed a lot in the intervening 30 years. Uh, but this paper directory basically had your name, you know, where you live, contact info, and whether or not you are okay with visiting birders contacting you to help find notable birds. Uh, let's say you're visiting California for whatever reason. Uh, you wanted a day of birding. You could look up California members for where you're going, see, where, see whether they were cool with helping visiting birders and call or, or send a letter. Remember, this was for a long time pre-internet to get help finding a bird for a day of birding or whatever. As you can see, this was a very useful tool for birders because the ABA was as much as a social club as anything. And remember, at the time, there were not a lot of outlets for traveling birders looking to meet other birders outside of their immediate region. Nowadays, that, of course, is less of an issue. The social media revolution, I guess, has changed things forever. Uh, but there are still benefits to ABA membership in terms of connecting birders around the U.S., Canada, and beyond, which is a sort of a long lead-in to say that we have launched our own birding-centric, social media-esque membership directory that intends to be what the old directory was, but also a place for birders to do online birding stuff. It is called ABA Community. Another thing we hear from birders all the time is frustration with the balkanization of rare bird reporting groups and apps and chats and whatever. If this ABA community can be a clearinghouse of sort in the same way that the ABA's birding news is for listservs, that's, that's another potential benefit, at least to our mind. Um, on a side note, it's sort of incredible how listservs, uh, perhaps one of the most primitive internet community mediums, have managed to hold on like they do in the birding world. I have no idea why. Anyway, prologue uh, over. If you are a member of the ABA and you'd like to play around with the new ABA community, please create an account. Check it out. I hope you find it useful, especially as we try to build a sort of critical mass of birders there. It does require a minimum amount of I don't know, activity to keep people around. To that end, I have created a discussion for the American Birding Podcast. Please come and join me. Uh, talk about what you've enjoyed there. We'll see. We'll see how this goes. On the show this week, Hopefully many of us are aware of the connection between migratory red knots and spawning horseshoe crabs in Delaware Bay, but that critical stopover for these shorebirds is deteriorating due to a new plan to expand horseshoe crab exploitation. Tim Preso of the law group Earth Justice and Avid Birder is here to discuss what that means and what birders can and should 
do about it. All of that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of October 2022. Hold on to your horses. It has been a huge week for state and provincial first records. I don't intend to shortchange any of them, but there are a lot. I apologize if I do. Let's just jump into it. We'll start in Michigan, which is having an absolute dream 2022 in terms of new birds. Two potential state firsts came this week from opposite sides of the world. The first, a variegated flycatcher in Huron County. This is an austral migrant that breeds in Central South America and has a completely random distribution in the AVA area with previous records coming from Maine, Tennessee, Ontario, Washington, and Florida, now Michigan. This is clearly a bird that can show up anywhere. But that was not all. A bar-tailed godwit, yet another bird with an impressive migration, was seen at Whitefish Point in Chippewa County this week as well. Michigan now up to seven new species for 2022. Let's go over to Wyoming, which hasn't gotten the attention other places have, but definitely gets it this week as both a groove-billed Ani and a pair of northern hawk owls in the northwest part of the states represent firsts for Wyoming, the Ani and Teton, the owls in Yellowstone. There was also Wyoming's third record of ancient merlet in Teton this week for an extraordinary run. An overnight pelagic out of Brooklyn, New York, had what was, by all accounts, an excellent encounter with New York's first record of Bermuda petrel. One hopes that these become more frequent as the species continues to recover. In North Dakota, another state that gets far too little attention, an Anna's hummingbird at a feeder in Bismarck is a state first. And now we get to the truly wild stuff. We are in the midst of a movement of red-legged honeycreeper, the likes of which we have never seen in the ABA area. The species is fairly common not too far south of the U.S.-Mexico border and was added to the ABA checklist based on a bird in Texas in 2014. There have been sightings in South Florida since 2006 at least, though, muddied by their inclusion in the cage bird trade. But this week, we saw multiple reports from South Florida such that it really seems like there's a natural movement occurring. Those were followed by two birds discovered on Grand Isle Louisiana, where they are a first record, and another bird in Jefferson County, Texas, a second for that state. The suspicion, uh, based on the large number of records, is that these are, in fact, wild birds, perhaps from Mexico. Tropical storm Carl has been sitting west of the Yucatan Peninsula this week, and it could very easily have spun some of these birds up to the northern coast of the Gulf. Anyway, very cool. And now to California, where the ABA's 10th record of wood warbler was seen in Los Angeles. This is a California first and the first record of this species in North America away from the western Alaska Islands. So quite a jump to go from St. Paul Island to Los Angeles. It was initially identified as an odd Tennessee warbler. Easy to do. One wonders if that has happened in the past. But thankfully, it was well photographed and the correct ID was quickly determined so that many birders could see this shocking old world vagrant. What a week. Amazing stuff in terms of quality and quantity. Those were just the highlights. For a full accounting, you can check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and on ABA Community. Every spring, thousands of red knots congregate on the Delaware Bay to take advantage of the horseshoe crab spawn, and fueled by crab eggs, they finish a migration that spans from the southern tip of South America to the northern reaches of North America. That essential link in this migratory chain is, once again, it feels like under threat, which concerns the environmental law group Earth Justice and its partners. Uh, Tim Preso of the Biodiversity Defense Program is here 
to talk about this specific threat. Uh, welcome, Tim. Thanks for joining me. Well, it's great to be here. I'm happy to be able to talk about this issue with you. Can you start by talking a little bit about the scale of the red knot migration and, and why the Delaware Bay is so important to these birds? Yeah, I think we all know that migratory birds are having some serious threats at this point, and mm -hmm. red knots are really at the top of the list. And in some, for some, in, in some respects, that is because of the epic scale of their migration. Um, red knots have this incredible mi migration from as far south as Tierra del Fuego, where they spend our winter, to the Arctic uh, of North America, where they breed. And the movements they make along the migratory path are really astounding. Uh, in particular, the Tierra del Fuego, the, the southernmost population, uh, during our early spring moves up the coast of Brazil. And then at some point, uh, they spend some days sort of refueling um, on the, the, the tidal flats of Brazil. They shrink their digestive organs, they grow their flight muscles, and they launch from the coast of Brazil. And for many of these birds, the next stop will be Delaware Bay, or perhaps somewhere else on the Atlantic shore of, of the United States on their way to Delaware Bay. And they will cross thousands of miles of open ocean with 24-7 flight uh, through a variety of challenging conditions, and they arrive at Delaware Bay substantially depleted, and still having one more big step to go in their migratory journey. And the reason that Delaware Bay stands out so much uh, in terms of its importance for this movement is what you talked about in your introduction, which is they land at Delaware Bay uh, right when horseshoe crabs are emerging by the you know thousands, tens of thousands, to yeah. spawn and lay their eggs in the sands of you know New Jersey, Delaware, and and, and uh, areas there, and and those eggs are an incredibly nutritious food source. First of all, they don't have a shell like a clam or a mollusk, right? So they're yeah. super easily digestible for a an individual that just shrank its digestive organs to make this massive <laughs> right. transoceanic flight. And they're super nutritious, lots of fat and protein, and the birds can literally double their weight in a matter of about ten to twelve days and they totally recharge, and then they make that next stage of their journey to the Arctic fit for reproduction, and they're able to, you know, to land there and then deal with all the huge energetic demands that, mm -hmm. that nesting and, and uh, raising chicks require. And so the Delaware Bay is such a critical uh, stopover along that route, and yet for about the last 20 years, it has been seriously impoverished. And what we're concerned about right now is that all the same things that have, have depleted it are now threatened to be magnified by a, a new proposal to expand the commercial use of horseshoe crabs there. And we can, mm -hmm. we can get into that. Yeah, yeah, I, I do want to get into that. But first, I just want to point out that like, it, is, it is truly amazing to me when we talk about the scope of these, these migrations, particularly shorebirds, um, how brief each stop is. Even the places where they breed, they're really only there for about a month like these birds are just like constantly constantly moving and all these little stopover spots are these links in a, in a chain that kind of runs up and down the americas and uh the loss of one of these links is you, you just realize how critical it is when you realize that these birds are just 
always, always, always on the move. And I, whenever I see a red dot, I live on the East Coast in North Carolina. We, I run into them every once in a while um, in, the, in the migration. And uh, I, I, just, I, I just can't keep from thinking about you know, every step is just an outsized importance because of this, this, this lifestyle that they have. Yeah, I mean, we are the beneficiaries of, you know, a, a recent history in which the, the various steps along that route have been sufficiently intact right. for this incredible migratory movement to persist into the 21st century. Mm-hmm. In order for us to keep it that way, there's going to have to be renewed focus on each of the critical points along the way. And certainly Delaware Bay stands out as, as a you yeah. know, very near the, or at the very top of the list. Yeah, for sure. If not, because it is our responsibility effectively as you know, United States citizens who are sort of responsible for protecting the area within the purview of this, this national boundaries. And so, yeah, obviously Delaware Bay, it, this is our responsibility. This is our link in the chain that we have to take care of. So, you know, we often think back about species like the ivory-billed woodpecker and the Carolina mm-hmm. parakeet that were gone before any of us were born. And we sort mm-hmm. of lament that. And then, you know, there's sort of the, oh, maybe it's still around and we have this constant hope. Mm-hmm. But this is happening during our lifetimes. Yeah, the threat sure. to these red knots and, and and is happening during a time when we can do something about it. Mm-hmm. And you know what we're trying to do is sort of sound the alarm and take action before another thing slips away. Yeah. So so what is the current state of the red knots at Delaware? And I guess that the horseshoe crabs as well. Yeah, both are substantially depleted, mm-hmm. and this really started in the 1990s when there was sudden. Um, interest in really exploiting the horseshoe crab population for a a bait harvest. And basically Mm -hmm. people gather up these horseshoe crabs and grind them up and use them as bait for other Mm -hmm. fish species that are used in sushi and other things. And suddenly there was this huge amount of exploitation of taking of horseshoe crabs and that population really plummeted. And along with it went the red knots. In the 1980s, there were, you know, overflight surveys that the peak count could be as high as 90,000 hmm. um, a red knot stopping there, as you say, for that critical but brief window. And then after this crash, the population has been so depleted that within the last two years, the peak count was down as low as like 6,800. Hmm. It was 13,000 wow. approximately this last spring, which is still so far below what we had even, you know, just as recently as like the late 80s. And since 2015, the red knot has been listed as a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. Since 2012, there's been a fishery program, a management program in place, the idea of which was to restore the depleted conditions. That hasn't worked. The mm. horseshoe crabs are still depleted. The red knots are still depleted. And unfortunately, now the management is turning in a different direction with a proposal to actually expand the horseshoe crab harvest based on what mm. we think is some really flawed analysis that suggests that somehow there's some more resilience in the system and an opportunity to take more, even though we're not seeing it in the numbers of the species that's listed under the Endangered Species Act. Is there a reason why horseshoe crabs are so attractive to the fishing industry? Is it because they are horseshoe crab meat is particularly good as bait, or is it just because it's convenient? You know, I'm not a, I'm not in the fishing industry, so sure, I, sure, I, but, sure. but I will just say, from my understanding, there are a lot of them. There yeah. were a lot of them. And they were relatively accessible, and it right. was it was recognized that they were pretty effective bait for eels and whelk, which are both okay. commercially hmm. used species. And so, All right. it always surprises me what's commercially useful. It's like just yeah. some some bizarre things sometimes in yeah. the fishing world. Yeah, 
So how do these decisions regarding uh, the horseshoe crab take get made and what sort of interests are behind them? I mean, it should be fairly obvious that the fishing industry, the you know, commercial fishing industry is, is, has a real interest in this, in this, in making these changes, but are there any sort of surprising people that are behind some of these changes, these proposed yeah. changes, I should say. This really gets down into a pretty obscure, um, obscure bureaucracy that was formed by an interstate compact uh, of all the states along the Atlantic coast of the United States, and it's called the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. Mm -hmm. And this is the body that sets the the harvest numbers for all kinds of commercially used species along the Atlantic states. And they're the ones who've been setting the harvest quota for horseshoe crabs under what they've called an adaptive management approach with the aim of trying to restore horseshoe crabs and red knots. It hasn't worked. And now there is a proposal that they're entertaining, which is scheduled for a vote in November, uh, in which they would do something dramatic in the wrong direction, which is recognizing the plight of horseshoe crabs and red knots. For the last 10 years, there's been a prohibition on the harvest of female horseshoe crabs. And mm -hmm. of course, females are the most important for the shorebirds because they're the ones that lay the eggs. pretty obvious, yeah. <laughs> uh, Females have not bounced back, mm -hmm. notwithstanding that moratorium, but now they are proposing to lift that prohibition and allow for the resumption of female crab harvest, which is exactly the opposite of what right. you know, red knots need at this point. Yeah, the cynic in me is thinking, uh, you know, they're saying that there are fewer horseshoe crabs to harvest, and if they limit themselves to just certain horseshoe crabs, then they're you know not going to meet whatever quotas they have internally, and therefore they want to expand the number of horseshoe crabs. But it may may or may not be the case. But you know, I tend to be kind of <laughs> cynical about those sort of decisions that get made. But um, yeah, do, do you have any insight in that, or is uh, am I barking up the wrong tree? Yeah, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission has you know, been heavily influenced by fisheries interests for sure. Sure, sure. I don't know exactly what's motivating this new proposal, but what mm -hmm. I do know is that it's it's both unjustified and wrongheaded. Yeah. It's unjustified by the science, although they've, they have claimed to have the science on their side. We've now produced some new analysis that shows they don't. Mm -hmm. um, and it's unjustified as a means, of, certainly as a means of recovering a threatened species. Yeah. What happens to the, the red knots? You talk about how the red knots are, you know, 10% of what they were at their peak even 20 years ago. Do the red knots, do they overfly the areas where the horseshoe crabs used to be? They, they are able to recognize that the, the horseshoe crab population is not what it was, that the food source is not uh, sustainable for, for these large groups of red knots. Do they go elsewhere? Are they stopping down and looking for the horseshoe crabs that are not there anymore? And then they obviously are not fit enough to make that final jump. Um, what do you suspect is happening to these red knots? Yeah, based on the discussions we've had with the scientists who are actually out in the field observing mm -hmm. this, it seems like there's, first of all, a lot more birds are just moving, not, they're either not staying for any length of time or they're just yeah. not stopping anymore at Delaware Bay. Yeah. And they're moving to other locations. Unfortunately, in those other locations, likely what they're going to find are small um, crustaceans and clams, mm -hmm. which have a shell that has to be digested yeah. and just doesn't give them the nutritional bang for the buck that horseshoe crab eggs sure. does. And that exactly. has cost then when they try to make this next phase of the journey to the Arctic, the result is reduced reproduction, increased mm -hmm. mortality, and that's why we have the numbers that have dropped so much. Yeah. There are also recently some indications that one of the things that happening is that the birds that are showing up at Delaware Bay are the ones who don't winter as far south. Okay. And so they 
don't have as much of a critical need. I mean, they definitely have an important need, but not as much as mm-hmm. somebody who just crossed the Atlantic from Terra del Fuego. Right. Um, those birds, the long distance migrants, which is the most, you know, which is the most imperiled part of the population, it seems like they have increasingly not used uh, Delaware Bay as much as mm. those that might winter a little bit further north. So yeah. we're seeing some real shifts. We're seeing drops in reproductive success and increased mortality. And those are all the things you'd expect yeah. when you eliminate a critical food source from a bird that's pushing the limits of, of you know, migratory needs um, yeah, as the red sure. is. Yeah. So what can average birders do to help raise awareness of this situation? Are there comments that need to be made to certain groups? Are there, um, are there things that yeah, birders, bird clubs, bird groups can, can do to make sure that birders have a voice at this table and not just, you know, fishing advocates or fishing, yeah, commercial uh, fishing advocates? Unfortunately, this, this, uh, this management system is so arcane that I think most members of the public aren't even aware how it operates, let alone what it's going to do to the places and things they care so much about. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, you know, this issue has kind of been lurking out there for a while. And people understood, I think, those who were at least aware of this part of the world understood that red knots were depleted, but probably aren't aware of this new threat to actually make the situation worse. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as always in these situations, from the, from the political perspective, the most important thing is to make sure your representatives know that you are focused on this and you care about it and yeah. you, want to, you, you want to protect the species. There are also a lot of more direct things that people can do, in, particularly in the mid-Atlantic region. There are, there are programs that go out and basically you know, try to help with the horseshoe crab uh, spawning process because, for instance, a lot of crabs come ashore and the surf tips them over and they're, they're on their backs and then the gulls come and, you know, that's yeah. a meal for the gulls, which is another important food source, but also horseshoe crabs, we can't afford to lose a lot more right now. So right. there literally are local programs where people go out and flip crabs over to make sure that they can huh. spawn and survive and, and just increase overall reproduction and survivorship. And those are valuable. Uh, and so, I mean, I think there are things people can do. Um, what we're trying to do, you know, we're a legal advocacy organization. So what we're mm-hmm. trying to do is say, hey, the Endangered Species Act matters here. The protections for red knots uh, have to be uh, observed. And we're trying to inject science and law into this fisheries decision-making process in the hope of first of turning back this new really harmful proposal, but in the long run, also of trying to reform and improve management so we can start moving these populations in the other direction. For sure. And yeah, and I, I, that gets me, that's a nice segue. I kind of want to switch gears just a little bit, if that's okay, and, and talk a little bit about the Endangered Species Act just in general and how it is used by groups such as Earth Justice, other environmental uh, law organizations. Um, how much power, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, does the Endangered Species Act have to protect species on this list? Yeah, I mean, the Endangered Species Act really is one of our most powerful environmental laws because hmm. Many of our federal environmental laws are sort of look before you leap laws or sort of say, consider the consequences before you do something. The Endangered Species Act actually puts some stop signs up where it's not just about look before you leap, which is definitely important, but also you can't go there in certain spaces. And so when it comes to a species like the red knot that is listed as a threatened species, there is a prohibition against any action by the federal government that might jeopardize the continued existence of the species. There's also a prohibition that applies to everybody, um, including the fisheries management agencies that says you can't take 
members of the species. So you can't go out and collect a red knot, you know, without a right. special permit from the federal government. Uh, and that doesn't just mean go out with a shotgun and shoot a red knot, but it also means you cannot modify the red knot's habitat in a way that will actually cause harm to the species through killing individuals or stopping reproduction. And that's right. where the horseshoe crab management comes in because there's such a close nexus there between horseshoe crab abundance and, and um, spawning and red knot survival. And so the Endangered Species Act provides protections there too. However, as with many laws, uh, they're no better than the paper they're written on unless mm -hmm. they're enforced. And the good news about the Endangered Species Act is it gives all of us as the public an opportunity to enforce it. And that's where organizations like mine come in. You know, we're a public interest nonprofit organization that is basically a bunch of lawyers who care about the environment. And mm -hmm. so our job is to make those laws matter in the real world. We can't always rely on the government to do that for us. You know, some of these issues are, are, are complex and politically charged and the government's not in the vanguard of enforcing statutes in sure. situations like this. So it, it repeatedly has fallen and I think always will fall on the public and interested and concerned people who care about these things and frankly love these places and, and what they support to be the ones to, to step up. And that's what we're trying to do in this moment. Are the ways to involve state government and local government in these sort of actions in ways that manifest, you know, in a positive way for the, the red knots and the horseshoe crabs? Definitely, because with respect to this interstate consortium I've been talking about, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, the members who actually sit in the room to make the vote are appointed by state governments. And yeah. so yeah. The, the states have a really strong influence in this process. Unfortunately, most often they seem to have been responding to concerns of the fishery industry. Right. And it's important to inject a broader perspective into the way the states respond to this. There are some notable exceptions. You, you may know, and some of the, your listeners may know, New Jersey has done something really progressive here and, and created a state moratorium on horseshoe crab harvest, mm -hmm. which has been great. New Jersey has also done a lot of work to restore beaches that where yeah. horseshoe crabs can spawn. It is not unfortunately reflected in some of the other states around the Delaware Bay. And it's really important for state governments to hear how important this is to people who live in those states and that they need to step up their engagement to recover this place. Yeah, it, it shows sort of the, the benefits and also the sort of the, the drawbacks of these multi of this multi-state effort. You know, you've got states like New Jersey, where, you know, you shout out to New Jersey Audubon, who have done a ton of great work as a, a state-run organization to, to, you know, make the interests of birders, environmentalists, nature watchers, all those people, you know, known, and, you know, maybe less so in a, in a neighboring state like I don't know. I don't have any particular reason to doubt, but Maryland and, and Delaware, who immediate, who have obvious interests in this area, but you know, maybe don't have a big organization like New Jersey Audubon to be able to constantly be in the ear of these local politicians making these decisions. Yeah, definitely. And and New Jersey Audubon is one of our key partners in this work, mm -hmm. and they're so effective and so great to work with. And and you know, I think there's an opportunity, though, in those other states for, for regardless of whether there's a New Jersey Audubon, there are, there are other Audubon organizations. Mm -hmm. And then there's also just the opportunity for the public to say yeah. to state leaders, we've got to do something about this. Yeah, for sure. Um, are there any other species who will, you know, sort of stand to benefit from this effort or similar efforts to, uh, to protect horseshoe crabs? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that because, you know, the Endangered Species Act is ultimately about recovering ecosystems. And the Delaware mm -hmm. Bay is such a potentially that grand ecosystem of, of yeah. biodiversity 
It, it yeah. is certainly the red knots that are affected, but it's so many other shorebirds that we don't hear as much about. Um, semi-palmated sandpipers, Dunlin, mm -hmm. uh, ruddy turnstones. A anyone who's been to this part of the country during the, the spring migration knows that there's flocks of many thousands of, of these other shorebirds that use this same resource. They are also reduced. They have yeah. not hit a cliff as much as red knots, maybe because they don't typically migrate as far and they don't have right. the weather quite as yeah. many. You know, yes. uh, the uh, most the most dramatic, the most extreme species are the ones that typically get the get hit first. Yeah, exactly. But also, if we look beyond birds, the horseshoe crab eggs are important to finfish. They're important to sea turtles. Mm -hmm. They really drive a huge amount of productivity in the ecosystem. And the impoverishment of that resource has really ripple effects throughout all kinds of biodiversity in the Delaware Bay. It could be, again, an incredible wonder, as it, as it still is in many ways, but it could be so much richer if we weren't in a place where we're kind of fighting over the scraps, as right. opposed to focusing on restoring a unified, glorious whole, which it can be again. Are there ways to build a horseshoe crab I don't, market, a horseshoe crab um, uh, fishery? that are more sustainable than this sort of bait fish issue. I, I recall you know, maybe a decade or two ago, um, you know, medical companies who are catching horseshoe crabs and taking horseshoe crab blood for use in various medical, um, medical efforts. Um, it was, you know, it's non-lethal to the horseshoe crabs. They put the horseshoe crabs back in the bay after they're finished. Like, are there ways to make, I guess, I don't know, make most people happy, you know, be able to have this commercial interest in the horseshoe crab fishery, but also sustain the horseshoe crabs in a way that protects these these bird species, these turtles, these fish that we care about. Yeah. And I should just say that biomedical issue has not gone away at all. Yeah. Um, that's still another factor out there that is, you know, really complex and presents some real difficulties for horseshoe crab restoration. And by the way, there is mortality associated with that bleeding. They certainly okay. don't. It's not. It, it, they, they do return them to the water, but as you might expect after having a, a, lot, of, yeah. a lot of your blood drawn, you may yeah. not do so well after you've been yeah. put back in, in the bay. But in any case, um, I think that the answer to your question is likely yes. I think one of the things that's been problematic so far is that the management has been based on very complex and sophisticated computer modeling. Yeah, And okay. it's such a black box for the public. Nobody sure. can understand what that is and what it's doing. And when this new proposal came out, they again said, don't worry, the modeling shows us this will all be fine. And finally, we decided we needed to sort of get under the hood of that. Yeah. So we went out and retained a modeling expert, um, a PhD uh, who specializes in the kind of model that is driving these management decisions. And then we requested from the, these agencies their models so we could look at them. Mm -hmm. First of all, they wouldn't give us most of it. They only gave us a piece of it. So all this is proposal is still moving forward while they won't share with the public a lot of what's driving it. But what we mm. did get, our expert looked at and, re and, and found flaw after flaw after flaw in right. the way it's conducted. And we've submitted a detailed report to the agencies about that. But I, I think what that suggests is that, you know, we, we shouldn't always rely on these claims of expertise when they're kind of behind a curtain where nobody else, no independent review can occur. And right. so one of the things we've tried to interject into this is some independent review, and we've raised some really substantial questions that, you know, frankly, should be viewed as the tip of the iceberg since we weren't able to look at the great bulk of, of the modeling that's driving this. But, you know, this just goes to show these are super complex things. The average member of the public has a really hard time getting a handle on it. But at the Good same now. time, when the agencies are saying, don't worry, we've got it covered, we've got a great model, 
it's really important to know whether that's true. So yeah. we've tried to to really explore and investigate this that in this situation, and we found some things that I think are really deeply troubling. Yeah. So what is the what is the timeline here? If birders are going to make their voices heard, if they're going to at least make an effort to change some minds uh, on this or, or raise some awareness on this, like when are these decisions being made regarding the horseshoe crabs, and and you know how quickly do we need to act? Yeah. Unfortunately, this is on a really fast time track. <laughs> um, it is currently uh, the the uh, plan for uh, the commissioners of the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission to vote on this in November. Mm-hmm. So uh, people need to, if they want to make a phone call or whatever to their their elected representative, now is the time. Having said that, this will continue to be a live issue of of debate and controversy. These management decisions going forward. So even beyond November, it's going to be important for more public engagement on these issues because one of the things that has has you know uh, gotten us to where we are today is that I think these folks aren't hearing from members of the public consistently mm-hmm. about we need to step up our recovery efforts. We're not getting the job done. Tim Presso is the managing attorney for Earth Justice's Biodiversity Defense Program. He urges birders to make their voices heard on this issue and, and others. Um, it doesn't just stop here. Um, good luck to you on this and uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits, not only in magazines, discounts to partners, opportunities to travel with us, but that feeling that you're contributing to a bigger and better birding community in the U.S., Canada, and beyond. You can get information at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Mark Christians and family of Caledonia, Michigan, Cindy Levine and family of Panama City Beach, Florida, Rachel Lawrence of San Francisco, California, Jesse Parker of Biloxi, Michigan, Joseph Pinnell and family of Florissant, Missouri, Carolyn Quinn of Washington, D.C., Rachel Ribeiro of Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and Luke Stevenson and Tara Olch of London, Ontario, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as the reason or one of the reasons for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who wonders if the birders on the New York Pelagic were able to find that Bermuda petrel because they followed it on YouTube knows. Technical production is by John Lowry, who thought he had found the perfect place online to share photos of yellow-breasted chat, but was shocked to discover that Snapchat is anything but. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz, who was excited to include these weekly mentions on his Limpkin profile. Mm. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere is American Birding Association. We are on Twitter as ABA. I am from the generation that took to the early social media platforms, especially that short-lived one where you could attach songs to your profile. I always chose a European starling imitating a northern bobwhite, and it made me one of the most popular accounts on Minuspace. Questions and comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swake. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week. <laughs>